Big Finish for the love of stories. You're listening to the Big Finish podcast. Release date Sunday the 1st of January 2023. Oh no, thought Ben. He's doing his work it out for yourself thing. He'll be playing his blasted recorder next. Doctor, he said loudly. This isn't really London, is it? The doctor looked up at his companions with a grin. That's right. This is a singularity. Happy New Year, Kunik and Benji! 2023 has arrived, oh. and so have we. Again. Yes. I'm Benji Clifford, he's Nick Briggs. This is Big Finish. Audiobooks, audio drama, and this podcast all for the love of stories. Uh, I didn't know whether we should go for some new kind of New Year music, but then I thought, nah, let's stick to what we know. Good old familiar Big mm. Finish nonsense podcast music. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's what I well, say. Quite, quite good point. Coming up in this week's podcast, our brilliant second doctor, Michael Troughton, reads a second doctor audio novel. The Dead Star, by acclaimed Doctor Who novelist Kate Orman. We go behind the scenes with Kate, producer David Richardson, script editor Roland Moore, and the Doctor himself, Michael Troughton. Oh, lovely. Hello, this is Kate Orman. The Dead Star is my first Doctor Who novel in nearly 20 years. I am over the moon. Following that, we once again catch up with listeners' emails sent to podcast at bigfinish.com. And to finish, we tease you with the first 15 minutes of Kate Orman's brilliant audio novel, The Dead Star. Polly asked Ben, What's the first thing you're going to do when we get there? Both of them had their hands on the TARDIS console. They hadn't got the faintest idea how to operate it, but experience had told them to be ready to grab hold of something solid. Well, I, t- I feel like when I said podcast at bigfinish.com, I felt like I said podcast. Podcast. The, p- the puddle cast. <laughs> we talk about anyway. puddles. Now, over the last day or so, Benji, we've been uh, WhatsApping, uh, as often happens. Certainly have. And you mentioned three things that, I th- that we've decided we're going to discuss. So tell us your first uh, Doctor Who-related um, interesting anecdote. <laughs> well, well, two of these I discovered um, over the Christmas period. Uh, the first was um, I was mentioning that Network TV um, have just released uh, a massive... Uh, crossroads box set oh god yeah. like, you're not just, gonna buy it are you I'm, i mean there's temptation there there's temptation there I t- um, I t- but trauma- i was talking about traumatized me <laughs> i was talking about crossroads and then um my mum said oh yes um that was written by uh, peter ling wasn't it and i said well, I, so i googled it and i said yeah yeah it was written by peter ling and she said, yeah, she said, your granddad, he, he bought a car off Peter Ling, because Peter Ling used to live in Hastings. It was an Alpine Sunbeam. And um, and she said, yeah, yeah, he bought a car off Peter Ling. He was a really nice guy, and we'd often get post, uh, we'd get Christmas cards from Peter Ling. Uh, uh, and, of course, Peter Ling was, um, he was the writer, as well as writing for, for the Avengers and Crossroads. He was also the writer of um, The Mind Robber. Yeah, um, the Doctor what, Who... Patrick Troughton won yeah. 1968, was it, or 69? Oh, good question. I, I want to say 69. 69. Yeah, let's have a look. The Mind Robber. But yes, he co-created Crossroads, that, which was, you know, um, 
a big long-running soap opera in lasted in for Britain. years, didn't it? And Absolutely. it was awful. I mean, it was really television. Six, at its 68, absolute worst. 1968. 1968. Yeah. And, and of course, the the mind robber is is well known for being. Did they truncate it, or did they extend it? I can't remember. Well, it says it's five here. Episodes. Um, it says here that episode one was written and uncredited. Uh, it was written by Derek Sherwin. Yeah. Whereas Peter Ling wrote episodes two to five. Yes. So there must have been something going on there in order well, to... Well, all the scripts in that final season of Patrick Trouton, all the scripts were just falling apart, weren't they? And then, you know, Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk had to basically write ten episodes of an argument for the war games. <laughs> I mean, you know, credit to, to Peter Ling. Um, the Mind Robber is pretty bonkers story. Yeah. Um, and to well, write the first that, episode's got nothing to do with it. I wonder, you know, I wonder whether Derek Sherwin perhaps... So it's, it's, it can go one of two ways, can't it? Mm. Either Derek Sherwin had this episode idea which didn't really work, and he just had that first episode, so they made it work. Or alternatively, Peter Ling wrote something completely off the wall, and Derek Sherwin had to come in and do the first episode to make it kind of all make sense. Uh, no, it's. I don't think it's actually either of those. I think, I, but I'm not sure. It, I think, I think they lost an episode. I think they lost an episode from um, the Dominators. Okay, I think it was the Dominators five parts. Good question. <laughs> Just two idiots trying to remember Doctor. Five Who episodes, fact. twenty-five minutes. Yeah, each. I, th- I think they, I. Th- I think the Dominators was six parts, but they just didn't think there was enough story, so they cut it down to five, and that left them with an, a space. And so um, Derek Sherwin, who I think must have been script editing, he certainly became the producer as well, um, wrote an episode of... Uh, yeah, an extra episode to put on the front of the mind robber. And it doesn't really occur to you until you've watched it a few times. You think this this first episode, although very moody and spooky and weird, has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> and it's very... It reminds me of the phrase that uh, my dear friend and, very, and brilliant script editor and brilliant writer, Alan Barnes, says. And I'm trying to think of a way of expressing it without using the rude word he used, but... Um, <clears throat> his, he said to me once he said and I agree with him he said any idiot can write a good first episode of Doctor Who he didn't use the word idiot he didn't use a really horrible word but uh, and he said because it's all questions and it's all mystery and that's what Derek Sherwin did he wrote you know I mean you don't know what's going on and it means nothing and actually ends up not relating to the other four parts at all so you know, as long as you don't have the responsibility of delivering on the mystery you set up, you can write a brilliant first episode of Doctor Who because it's all just question marks and. Well, it's a setup, isn't it? You can set yeah. up anything like that, and I mean, with 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 this, it's. If you don't feel the responsibility to have answers, then it's fine. Yeah, just ask no. questions. Well, it's that thing is it's you know this happens and then they're there, right? And um, and what happens there? Well, I don't know. <laughs> right. Okay. I mean, in this case, a literal sense of what happened. There's nothing there. There's actually nothing there. Yeah. Um, but I've always felt a kind of soft spot for the mind robber anyway. Cause yeah, because it's because it's, it's a crazy story, and it is a bit. Um, there's some. I mean, there's some absolutely hammy stuff in it. You know, um, what's his <gasps> name? That that muscle bound. The carcass. The carcass with that played by Christopher outfit. Robbie. Oh gosh, yeah. Christopher Who was the Robbie. cyber leader in Revenge of the Cybermen? 
He's got, he's got quite a track record in inappropriate accents, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, so some could say maybe he's just not that good. Um, <gasps> he used to know. be an announcer on Southern Television, you know. Did he really? Yeah, mm. there we go, Christopher Robbie. Round about the same time he was playing the Cyber Leader in uh, Revenge of the Cybermen. He studied he's, at think, RADA as well. Yeah. I remember, I maybe, yeah, wow. Very tall man. That's why I got the Cyberman part. How in- yeah, well remembered as the InVision announcer for Southern Television. He announced the final day of broadcasting. Did he um, really? There was yeah. someone else. I've, this is almost a complete replica of a conversation I was having with Stephen Noonan on the phone last night. <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Uh, there was someone else uh, who was an InVision continuity announcer for Southern Television who also featured in an episode of Doctor Who. Uh, would you like me to give you a clue as to who it might be? Go on, then. He's in The Invasion. Okay. In the later episodes. Interesting. What and fun- he's, you know, the missile control centre that they go to to fire off missiles at the cyber spaceships. Okay. Yes. He's yes. the commander of that missile base, and his name is Clifford Earl. Clifford, I've got the funny enough... And he sort of speaks like that, you know, oh, you know... Clifford Earl, that really rings a bell, because he's been in quite... He's been in quite a few things, I know, because I always, you know, recognise a fellow Clifford. Um, (laughs) It's the wrong way round, though. Dalek's master plan. Is he in the Dalek's master plan? As the station station sergeant, yeah. Ah, I didn't know Played Major Oh, of course, in the the Feast of Stephen, yes, 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 yes. There we go, yeah, he was in the Haunted House of Horror... Scream and Scream Again and yeah. The Sea Wolves. He never, ever played very big parts. And I always I, like I, those people. I, I enjoy those types of characters. Yes. He was in I Diamonds Are Forever, sorry. Pardon? He was in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. I mean, he did a lot. He was quite a sort of striking, handsome-looking man, quite useful for casting in, you know, little featured roles. I presume he's no longer still with us. Uh, yes, he passed away on the 30th of July, 2015. Oh, not that long ago. Bless him. I mean, I would say this controversial thing. Okay. He wasn't a very good actor. Well, I mean, you know, it's And I think he reached the limit of his talent. <laughs> yeah, but some, pe- some, people, some people are just, you know, serviceable. And, and he's got, he, you know, he played... Here he's, he just plays military guys, policemen... Cameramen and yeah. o- any officers, basically police jailer, um, you know that level of actor. actor. Yeah. Just yeah, just that kind of guy who you know says yes, sir, thank you, sir. I've got this piece of paper, sir. You know that that's the kind of, of thing I'm good at. <laughs> just <laughs> I've got this piece of paper, sir. Nicholas Briggs. Here are the gumboots you ordered, madam. Here are the madams you ordered gumboot. Yes. And will you be having dessert? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting, but and of course he, that that style of performance he did in the invasion—that's how he did the Southern Television announcing as well. Oh, next on Southern Television, <laughs> it was all a bit like that. And he used to have a strange habit of waggling his arm as he spoke. And me and my mate at school, Nick Layton, we used to always joke about Clifford Earl's funny waggling arm. And, <laughs> and what on earth he was doing with it? But t- more on that story never. Um, uh, there's also another uh, so Southern Television the announcers were all bit part actors Christopher Robbie Clifford Earl and Brian Nissen was one of the people oh, as Brian well Brian Nissen rings a bell as well yeah I yeah. mean you know I was too young for Southern Television but all these these things kind of you know 
I, I just know I know it's funny it's like when people recall things that that happened and I say oh yes I, yes I remember that you know even though I don't um, <laughs> uh, your next interesting Doctor Who fact please Benji hold on I've just got a picture of Brian Nissen here oh yeah, yeah. Who, yeah he, he was he in was, loads of movies and stuff Ring of Spies he, yeah, Ring of Spies. He had quite a significant small part in that. And I would say, of the three of them, he was the better actor. Well, he was in The Dam Busters and Richard III. Um, yeah. yeah. Be, you know, <laughs> he was in Dentist on the Job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yes, yeah, so, so another um, fun thing that I learned over Christmas is um, I was watching um, the Two Ronnies Christmas special. Um, this one. There were loads of. Yeah. yeah, well, this is one actually. It has Patrick Troughton in it, about three oh. years before he died, um, and you can tell he's getting well, it older. It would have been awful if it was three years after he died. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that would have been, you know, unspeakable. Um, <laughs> but my dad said, he said, oh, um, and it was, you know, Ronnie Corbett was doing that that sketch where he sits in the chair and tells a tenuous story that you know mm. has a million tangents. Yes, and. Um, my dad said, oh, he said, I, I, I saw Ronnie Corbett doing that act when I went to um, Television Centre. And I said, oh, well, when would that have been? You know, he said, oh, it was probably about 1979 it would have been. He said, yeah, he said, I saw him doing that. So, of course, immediately I'm thinking Doctor Who. I'm thinking, well, you must. And he said, he said, oh, I remember we had a little tour. He said, and, you know, I, I said, well, did you see anything? He said, well, I remember somebody pointing to these rocks and saying <laughs> that these rocks were used on Doctor Who, these stones. And... Um, and I remember thinking, well, they must have. I was thinking they must have been. Um, they must have been substantial enough for somebody to say these stones were used in Doctor Who. Because, mm. because mm. you know, you, you wouldn't bother if there was just a polystyrene rock over there. You wouldn't bother mm. saying, oh, that was used in Doctor. You just say it's some polystyrene rock. So the fact that they made like a, an active, mm. sort of thing of saying these stones. So of course. You know, my first thought is where it's the stones of blood. It must be. Yeah. It must be. It was around that time. Well, when you mentioned it to me, I, I WhatsApped you. Agree. <laughs> exactly. You know. So, I, and and Twitter. <laughs> I put it on Twitter, and I've had lots of wonderful people messaging back with possibilities of what, what it could be, and some people saying, you know, it could be that story. It could. It could be something from, you know, could be a, a city of death, sort of, you know, Jaggeroth. Uh, planet surface business no, I, I don't know could be, yeah. could be. but uh, e either way i think that's pretty cool because that's one of those yeah. those fun little tiny doctor who relicy things because it's as well that these are things that like i know it sounds funny but they're things that don't exist anymore if that makes sense like we can go to to the odd you know the doctor who experience these sorts of things and you'll see you 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 get you more often than not, you've probably seen a few of the things. If you go to these events enough, like you'll see the robot from Robot, and you might see, you know, you'll see various replica Daleks. But there's something special when you see something that you you haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember when um, I think they they restored um, Morbius. Oh. And that costume, and um, you know, and I remember that was exciting because it's like ah. Mm. Oh, because of course a lot of the props got damaged in the fire didn't they at um, Longleat um, oh did they? I believe so yeah I didn't know of, that yeah a lot of things were, were really badly damaged and some of them just gone um, but yeah so to see those stones and obviously I don't know maybe they maybe they do exist I don't know but um, I like that 
That's a bit, That's of, bit nice. of history. A little portion of history. Lovely. And the mention of the two Ronnies there, for those who don't know, sort of British comedy icons, uh, the main thing they had in common is that their name, first names were Ronnie, Ronnie Barker and Ronnie <laughs> yeah. Corbett. And Ronnie Corbett, as Benji said, used to do this bit where he sat in a chair and told a sort of shaggy dog story. And I don't know whether I dare mention one that stuck in my mind from when I was a kid because it was a bit saucy. And it was, it was the gist of the story was that... Um, uh, this chap had been in a, a, a sort of party with his wife not there and they played a party game where they all had to uh, pick out of a hat a subject to talk on like an expert and this guy picked out sex and apparently gave a very you know illuminating chat about sex <laughs> Uh, which they are all, you know, but then afterwards he was really embarrassed about it and was terrified that his wife would find out about it. This being the 70s, you know, <laughs> anything vaguely saucy was all, oh dear, oh, it's naughty, can't talk about it. So he told his wife that he had done a talk on sailing. <laughs> And then when his wife and he were in the company of the other people who had been at that party, they all started talking about, oh, how much her husband had spoken with great um, expertise on his given subject. And, of course, she, they all knew he'd spoken about sex, but the wife thought he'd spoken about sailing. She said, I don't know how he spoke about it for so long because he's only done it once. And his <laughs> hat blew off and he was sick. <laughs> oh, dear. I, it's, it's exactly the funniest thing is when you were telling it, I could just hear it in his voice. Like that's exactly the type of thing he. And, and of course, the beautiful thing about these stories as well is um, it's just the hat blowing off, just and he was really, sick. It conjures up such an image. To it just oh god, Ronnie Corbett as well. Um, not what you want. Um, but he would tell these stories as well, and and it was it was just so like it said. Of course, you know. John was saying this, and John's an interesting fellow because he does this, and it like always goes off, and he, he, yeah, he, he was, and then he comes back. It was round all again. tangents, wasn't it? That was the joke of it. But anyway, it was a, but anyway it's like, the producer but said, the producer said, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I mean, the, the thing that makes it interesting is because that because these sketches are very popular. That chair is iconic. It's an mm, it's just mm. because it was just him and a chair. So it's very iconic. So it stood out in my my dad's mind. And I mean, seeing seeing him do it must have been very funny. Yeah, yeah. It, you always felt the audience were thinking, "Oh, this is the special bit. This is it. This is the one." Well, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? Really, you know, you, you, there are certain iconic things, aren't there, in all telly shows that you want to be a part of. And talking of which, your third interesting fact. This isn't an interesting well, it's, it's fact. It's not really at a, all. a fact at all. It's just that I, I just sat and I, I was watching Ark in Space um, yesterday and, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I just wanted to watch some Doctor Who, quite frankly. Yeah. 1975, oh. Tom Baker. Tom Baker's first ad adventure out into space, just for those who don't know. And I, I love this one anyway because all the Nerva Beacon stuff, I just find it really space, it space station, station Nerva. Nerva yeah, it certainly was. But all that <laughs> stuff, I, lo I love that. Uh, uh, you know, it's just real warm memories. But it suddenly occurred to me that not taking into account Katerina, um, Harry Sullivan potentially might have been the companion that had the least amount of TARDIS time in the TARDIS. If you take into account 
that the whole you know time ring business mm-hmm. as well then you know well you I mean, never see harry on the tardis set do you no i don't do you ever i don't no. think you ever no, do you never do so that's the first thing just anyway but mm. also given the fact that that most of his most of his adventures really are the time ring business and then yeah. just back at unit it's interesting, isn't it? Somebody yeah. has probably already worked this out, and if not, then our dear listeners who are so, so talented and and go to great lengths to appease our random tangents, um, <laughs> um, I'm sure they'll they'll come up with a a full chart to support or disprove this theory. No, no, no. He's he never appeared on the interior TARDIS set. He did travel in the TARDIS, but uh, I mean, he travelled at the end of Robot. Yes. And then not until the end of Revenge of the Cybermen. But you didn't see... You saw him enter and exit the TARDIS, but you never... They weren't using the... the and the, the first time in the Tom Baker era where you saw the inside of the TARDIS was Planet of Evil, which, of course, yes. was the story after Harry left. So there we go. And that's that's interesting. I, I often forget that. You know, and then, and then it changed... Because obviously we get the Pyramids of Mars TARDIS as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what was going on there, tarting it up a little bit and thinking about it and possibly redesigning it and then thinking. Well, I think no, yeah, you know. Philip Hinchcliffe had that in mind because they did change it in the next season, didn't they? Yeah, they changed it to the wooden control room, which was quite a radical step. They, they, I remember they said in the Radio Times that we've had the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in to give their seal of approval. Like someone from the Doctor Who Appreciation Society was going to come in and go, "No, I don't like it. Go back to the old one." Oh, sorry, yeah, we'll just uh, we'll just throw it away then, shall we? We'll put it in the bin. That's fine. But of we'll course, they eventually white. got rid of it because it just um, warped because it was so wooden. Literally, literally wooden. Um, I do. Yeah, I've, I. It's funny, you know. Um, hmm. When I first saw that, and like all my stories, it all goes back to UK gold and all that business. Um, when I first saw it, I really wasn't that keen on that. I just didn't because it didn't what, feel like space. No, 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 no. The wooden TARDIS. Oh right, no, and neither, I neither was I actually. No, but it's only as you get older and you appreciate. Um, certainly for me, I, you know, you appreciate that style of Doctor Who. Suddenly, you think, no, no, it's a, it makes sense. But it's, it's a, a very nice little diversion, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, it was. It was I miss the moving part. I, I like, I like the the column going up and down in the middle. Oh. That's. The sort of active part of the set, I quite like that, and the fact that they just had a shaving mirror, and that's a brilliant scene, isn't it? When they first go in there, and Sarah says to the Doctor in Mask of Mandragora, "That looks like a shaving mirror," <laughs> expecting him to sort of. It sounds like she expects him to say, "Actually, it's a quadraphonic neutralizer or something," and he goes, "Yes, it is." <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the Doctor's piloting the TARDIS while shaving. Well, I can imagine. Well, it wasn't John Pertwee's jacket in there as well. Yes, which is totally covered in cobwebs. Yeah. Well, there's a big finish story in that. Yeah. Surely there's some there's something there. Yeah, he was in there for a reason, shaving. Um, yeah. yeah quite you're giving me ideas now. Yeah. Doctor Who and the Gillette monster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it can't be CD, a story with a Sarah razor. because, of course, Sarah's never seen it before. When she goes in there in the Mask of Mandragora, she's. It'd have to be Joe Grant. Yeah, it would have, yeah, to, have be Joe. to be Joe Grant. That would work, and I could imagine that being a sort of pert. Perts we would have rocked that, I think. D- uh, Day of the Dalek style, John Pertwee drinks wine. John Pertwee era would work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just imagine him with a lovely vintage in there now. Um, 
But this gorgonzola oh. cheese is is what is it he says about the gorgonzola? <laughs> gorgonzola oh yes, because <laughs> that was quite an exotic thing, gorgonzola cheese in 1972. Gorgonzola. Now it's pretty, you know, whatever. Day of the I just Daleks. I just watched Day of the Daleks again just the other day. Did you watch it with your voice dub? Well, I watched originals? it on BritBox. So yeah, then bizarrely they've got the souped up version with my voice in it. With and the um the the cool uh, slightly different um. Is that the one with the extra CG? I don't think they do have the extra CG on yeah. that. Yes, oh, they, they do. do on that car. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. When they shoot people, they they sort of go <laughs> splat, you know. Uh, that's when ogrons and um, gorillas shoot people. But, um, <coughs> but rather um, immodestly, the biggest thrill for me watching that episode, apart from hearing my Dalek voices in there, is the fact that my I get a credit on the John Pertwee closing oh. sequence, it says Dalek voices Nicholas Briggs. I just that's just insane and mad and and just you know it, it's kind of that's like one of the proudest moments of my <laughs> life to have that credit on it, even though it's you know just a sort of I know a lot of people disapprove of all the you know special edition fiddling around with stuff and a lot of people have said to me they don't like the Day of the Daleks one but. Uh, but I think it's I, I I would so there's an argument to be said here as someone who's a relative purist, I I I sort of enjoy first and foremost I enjoy that both versions of that for different reasons. I do think for a lot of people they found that Day of the Daleks with the original voices for them. I do I know of people that that they didn't enjoy or appreciate that story because the voices took them out of it. Because mm, they the same were, for me when I originally different. saw it, I thought, "What is wrong with these voices?" Because it's they're very different, and I mean, for me now, I find it a real novelty, and I quite mm. enjoy it because it's different, and I think it's a little bit silly. But then, when you add in the new voices, it it changes the story because the threat factor of the Daleks goes up. Because when you, you actually you, listen to what they say, as opposed well, to you don't get bored for a start. Yes, um, but but I they mean, they do speak a lot, actually. Don't they? They're much more than you. Or do, but, but, but you know, especially in that, they speak, you know, half speed because everything is like the, you know, it's I know it was quite, you know, he said sounding like he did a job of work. Um, it was quite difficult for me because I had to find a way around that, and, and so I extended a lot of the words rather than speak in a completely staccato. I did that thing of, you know, and to occupy the time available because the timing was, you know. That was the difficult thing. A, timing it to fit in the gaps, and B, um, trying to synchronise with the flashing lights that didn't even synchronise with the original stuff. (laughs) So there's slightly better synchronisation with my Dalek voice in Day of the Daleks than there was with the voices they used at the time. But mostly it was impossible to synchronise it because those lights aren't really flashing in time to anything useful at all. I mean, the ultimate fix would have been if they did a CGI fix of the flashing lights. They probably they probably could. They, then it wouldn't be too difficult. Well, I but... think they, you know, they went into a lot of detail on that. They did a great job. And I, actually, I, I want to shout out to Mark Ayres on this one because doing doing that job of having to replace the Dalit voices in something that, I mean, I don't I don't know how, in terms of the source material, I don't know what you had to play with but I imagine that, I, I don't know of an isolated No, no, there was score. no isolated uh, track and you can, if you listen on headphones, you can hear t- tiny snippets of uh, the original Dalek dialogue when there's an overlap 
Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. But but for, for by and large, um, I think he did a fantastic job. It was amazing. It, yeah, it's like it magic really what he did. Yeah. It is. He's it's very, magic. Very clever fellow, Marquez. So, but but really, for me, what I would say is, I, I kind of think of the, the new dub and the old dub as like two different viewing experiences. Yeah. Like like if I want to just enjoy it for what it is. I'll watch it with the original. And if I want something that feels more amped up and more exciting, dare I say. Because growing up, I didn't really like that story at all. I thought mm. it was... I used to think of it as like the rubbish the rubbish Dalek story that John Pertwee did out of all the great ones, because I love all of his Dalek stories. But it's I mean, only it great- has got... Mis- it's got more than the, uh, the usual number of mistakes in it and fluffs and, and some quite bad performances not in the leading roles <laughs> I know exactly um, who you're referring to which one am I referring to the controller <laughs> oh yeah the controller woman that was a choice wasn't it oh no Man. not the controller no, no, no I think he's brilliant oh I think he's far too theatery I think oh, he's no, really I, I think he gets it wrong I think he I think it's far too um but I think he really means it I I know I I completely disagree there what's his name Aubrey I, I can find mm. out. I don't know. I, I they just were really was... lucky to get him. He was like an international star. Um, uh, was it someone Aubrey? I can't remember now. Anyway, uh, he didn't no, do it I for mean, me. He didn't Reginald me. Styles is terrible. <laughs> the Reginald Styles. I mean, he's just. It was just a. Yeah. Yeah, he but, feels like a, he feels like a sort of last Wilfred Carter as Sir Reginald Styles. It's it's like yeah. a it's like a Clifford Earl or. <laughs> <laughs> um, Christopher Robbie performance, I think. Of course, Ogron's no complications. <laughs> no complications. Um, yeah, they cut that out. In the did they movie. really? Yeah, oh, yeah. they, should they get cut that. the no, no complications. complications. Um, yeah, and of course you've got the gorillas, and there are fluffs, and they, you know, the the guy, the two Dalek guys, also play the voices of the sort of United Nations people on the telephone. And they they screw their lines up, and Nick Courtney picks up the phone and doesn't hear what's being said on the phone, <laughs> and there's an awful eggy moment, and they fix all that, you know. God, how how funny! So it is a slightly imperfect story. The thing they can't fix is when John Pertwee refer- gets something wrong, where he refers to something that happened just a few moments ago, but it actually happened several scenes ago, and there have been other scenes at different locations in between. But because they're on the same set, he says a few moments ago, which is not correct. It doesn't work, in it? No, because you think, that wasn't a few moments ago. That was like earlier today before you went off to Alderley House. This is getting far too detailed, isn't it? Do you want to tell us what's happening next in this podcast? I will. Oh, I could talk about this forever, though. I have so, I have so many opinions. Um, yes, I'll, I'll tell you what happens next. So brace yourselves. Uh, it's time now, actually, to go behind the scenes with this week's Doctor Who release, Day of the Dark. No, it's not. The audio novel <laughs> by Kate Orman. It's The Dead Star. Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of Doctor Who, the audio novels. At a time when far too few women were writing for Doctor Who, Kate Orman was writing these fantastic novels for the BBC and for the for the Virgin Range. And having read them, it, it became my mission 
when I started doing the audio novels to track her down and to see if we could get her on board. Um, and I did find her. I can't, you know, it's a fair while ago now, and I can't remember how I found her. Um, but she was so keen to get involved. And I have to say, she came back to me with this story pitch, which was The Dead Star. And I just remember Roland and I, and then Nick Briggs just turning to each other and going, oh, yes, yes, that one. Hello, this is Kate Orman. Many years ago, I wrote original Doctor Who novels for Virgin Publishing and then for BBC Books. I uh, co-wrote a lot of them with my husband, Jonathan Blum. The Dead Star is my first Doctor Who novel in nearly 20 years. I am over the moon. I actually hesitated to do this book at first. I've never written for the second Doctor. And I thought to myself, I don't really know his stories that well. But then I realised that was actually not true anymore. John and I have been watching loads of black and white Doctor Who, including the animated Troughton episodes. And we've been hugely enjoying them. I was especially interested in writing for Ben and Polly, who've been forgotten about a little bit, I think. Especially Polly, who wasn't always as well served by the TV scripts as she could have been. Hello, I'm Roland Moore and I was script editor on The Dead Star by Kate Allman. It was a real coup to get Kate to write a script for us for these long form adventures um, and an absolute thrill to work with her. She's fabulous and um, it's great to see her back on Big Finish. It was so kind of effortless on our end, really. I mean, Kate delivered a storyline, which was great. And then she went away and wrote the novel and um, sent that in. And that was great. So on our side, there's kind of no real effort or development trauma at all. I'm, I'm sure it was hard work for Kate and she did all the legwork on it, but um, she delivered something that was brilliant and just, uh, yeah, it just stands as evidence of, of her skill as a writer. I think the Dead Star went really well. Kate produced a really solid first draft. Um, and so we went from there through the standard sort of script editing process, a few more drafts, adding things, changing things. But in essence, the story remained the same. And Kate gave us this amazing vision of a, a show that it, is, it really feels like a 60s Doctor Who, but the budget on it would have been way beyond what they could have done. And yeah, it's just enjoyable. And you can tell from the writing that she really enjoyed writing it as well, I assume. <laughs> she said she did. but um, So yeah, it was great to work with her. And yeah, it'd be lovely to work with her again sometime. I think it's the 60s-ness of those stories that's so appealing. John and I watch a lot of 60s TV in general, shows like The Avengers and Danger Man. So those were influences on the novel. I wanted to get in a car chase with expensive cars, a big country house, our heroes going undercover, and all of those ingredients. I also love the retro futures that we see in Doctor Who around that time, which reflect all the fears and all the hopes around technology. So the space race, computers are going to take over and so on. I wanted to blend that wonderfully chunky tech with some more up-to-date science and especially to have some things that they couldn't have pulled off at the BBC in 1968, like the robots in the book. With these long form audio releases, they're designed to be really immersive, long sort of listens that you can really just enjoy and relax with while also having the sort of production values of, as if they were a full cast drama. So, you know, we try and have as many sort of sound cues and music cues and sort of effects on it as possible. It's a sort of enhanced novel in a way. 
I do find the audio novels really exciting, actually. And the interesting thing is, I guess as a producer, I'd always kind of thought of myself as a, a full cast audio producer. Even when I was doing the Companion Chronicles, I always tried to nudge them towards a more sort of full cast style whenever I could. And then I came up with the idea of the audio novels and pitched it to Jason and Nick. And just having got excited about it, found myself really falling in love with the whole genre of, of the enhanced audio style. They're great to, to script edit and write. The longer form means you can explore more avenues for the story. Um, you can give more background, you can go off at tangents. And, you know, we've seen all the writers run with it and just give their own unique take on, on that format. They smiled at him a little warily. It hadn't been long since the doctor they had first met, the stern grandfather with a twinkle in his eye, had transformed himself into this avuncular, mischievous, sometimes infuriating new man. They were still a little unsure of him. Perhaps he felt the same way about them. That was the moment the TARDIS collided with something. In the end, I had an absolute blast writing for the second Doctor and Ben and Polly. There's so much going on with Patrick Troughton's Doctor. He's brilliant, but he's childish. He's affectionate. He's distant. People doing stupid and evil things make him erupt in frustration and anger. And at the time the novel is set, Ben and Polly have seen the Doctor regenerate and they're not 100% sure of this new Doctor. Ben and Polly, I think... They reflect a turning point in the show when instead of only distant historical times or alien worlds, the time and space that the TV viewers themselves lived in began to become an important part of Doctor Who. So 60s London as a setting. I really enjoyed script editing the TARDIS team of the Doctor, Ben and Polly. It's one of my favourite teams. I worked with the, the characters before on The Night Witches uh, for the early adventures and it's great to see the interplay between them. I think they work really well as a team and um, it was great to see them back and sort of in a time travel sort of setting in a story that perhaps wouldn't have been able to be realised on TV in the 60s but which has such a flavour of those stories. So that was fabulous. I was especially keen to use Polly's confidence and initiative which make her such a bright and lively character in The War Machines. And when I heard that Michael Troughton was going to narrate the piece, um, I was really excited by that because I think it's great to have that family connection. And also, you know, he does a brilliant second doctor. It's, um, yeah, it's a really sort of uh, sympathetic performance and um, it really evokes Patrick Troughton. Yeah, it's great. My name is Michael Troughton and I've been playing my father, the second doctor who, Patrick Troughton. Uh, what was lovely was being able to recreate a mixture of myself and dad um, and all the other wonderful characters. There were some brilliant characters. I didn't really want to do impressions of Ben or Polly. So I, I, I did sort of rough, a rough Cockney and a, and a, a sort of gentle Polly. But um, some of the villains were wonderful. Uh, they were great. The doctor looked the physicist in the eyes and said, what if I told you that the earth is due to be destroyed, not in a century's time, but tomorrow. When, when you're doing full cast work, you're, you're always surrounded by people, which is great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very exciting. But it, it's a lot harder because there are a lot more elements 
to sort of herd together and bring together and you know a forecast play is the work of lots of people and it's kind of my job to push them all in the same direction and you know that can be quite hard work at times just making sure it all comes together whereas on audiobooks actually I found it's a much more contained experience it's sort of me and Roland and the writer at first and then me and the narrator on the other side and then me and the the sound designer but it's a smaller group of people and a different way of working but just one that I'm finding really rewarding. That's one of the things I love doing about audiobooks is creating the voices because you see I'm an actor I can narrate but I like to act out the book I do love to do all the voices and uh, so it almost becomes like a, a radio drama I think this is why I took to doing Big Finish fairly easily because I was so used to doing uh, direct speech in a, a lot of the novels that I read Michael has been a real find for me with this series. I mean, I'd heard his work in the second Doctor Adventures, which I really enjoyed listening to. And of course, I'd worked with him before anyway. I mean, he he, he worked on one of the uh, novel adaptations with Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Different things through over the years. We've come together many times to do different things together. Uh, but I'd never worked with him as a narrator on anything. Uh, I tend to um, move around a lot <laughs> while I'm... Uh while I'm doing roles in my booth, in my little booth, which um, can get quite hot. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to fit in some kind of air conditioning unit before I suffocate uh, if I do a long run. <laughs> it was a case, actually, um, that Michael really just wanted me to send him the script and he would record himself at home. He didn't want anybody else listening in or supervising. He just wanted to do it in his own time. So when the files came back in and they were edited together. That was the first time I'd heard it. I, I just sent him the script and then just trusted in what he, he would send me. And he sent us magic, really. You know, it's, it's an absolutely polished performance. You know, the, the, I do recall I sat there listening to it and it kind of fried my brain how anyone can sit there and read a book like that and leap between all the different accents and voices. And I just know if I was doing it, I'd be pausing all over the place, trying to recalibrate my brain, trying to work out who was speaking. So just hearing somebody do it in such a such an immaculate way, it just brought the whole world of the story alive. Just go to bigfinish.com and type the dead star into the search pane at the top to find this one. Um, I, I met Kate Ullman several times. Back in the day, back in the 80s. Really? Very nice person. And oh. it's fantastic that she's written this audio novel for us. Uh, it's really lovely. And, and Michael's reading of it is superb. Well, meanwhile, then, uh, I hope Kate's doing well. And I hope Kate's, just like us, is bracing uh, herself for just how awful 2023 might be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it is now the joy that is or are listeners' emails. Did you like how I tried to make that, that bit in the script work with, with what we were discussing there? Did you, did you like that? Sort of, yeah, I tried. I tried hard, but it probably threw a lot of people. Probably thought, what's he going on about? Um, I love an email. We all love emails. These are the yeah. first emails uh, of 
2023. The originals. Uh, they, they were sent say. in 2022. It has to be said. Well, yeah, but we, we we'll just pretend that that's not the Let's case. Uh, and if you want to send them in, you can. Mm. It's really simple. All you need oh. to do is send them to podcast at bigfinish.com. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just send them in. You know. I didn't know that. Did you not? No. <laughs> no. You don't, I don't know where you've been for the past million years. No, I, I don't have um, no idea. Dear, dear. I've been well, watching um, Day of the Daleks and looking at my credit on the end and going, oh, look. <laughs> for, a mi- for a million years, over and over again. Um, well, we've got an email here from... Um, oh, I need some new headphones. This this headphone jack is getting a little bit little bit tired. Don't call me Jack. Um, sorry, sorry, dear. Um, this first email here is from Paul Garland. Um, shame it's not Paul Garman. Um, then we could have said <laughs> Garman. Um, Ready, uh, Davros. <laughs> Ready, Davros. Um, there's no subject on this one, so it could be about anything, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> but it reads here, Dear Nick, son of Captain Briggs, with a little asterisk, and yeah, Benji, son a, of yeah. Angela Clifford, asterisk. Um, I hope you're both well and enjoying some festive cheer. Certainly am. Uh, thank you for another year of Big Finish goodies, which I've enjoyed immensely. Mm. Um, was that the fun, though? Sounded a bit thundery. Really? Uh, although I'm getting through them at a slower rate as I change jobs and my commute is now a lot shorter than it was, and my big finish backlog is now correspondingly longer. Oh, damn. Dear, what a shame. Uh, I was rising to ask about some unfinished and possibly abandoned story arcs from Big Finish. For instance, in the monthly range, there was the Seventh Doctor, Ace and Older Mel arc, which went on for nine stories and then stopped suddenly in 2018. There is also the Seventh Doctor and Mags arc, the Sixth Doctor and Older Perry arc, and I'm sure there are plenty of others uh, that have never been concluded. Are there any plans to provide loyal listeners with some sort of conclusion to these arcs? Well, what do you want them to do? You know, kill people off? Uh, I don't know. It's a very good point. Uh, Yeah, Uh, there are no plans at the moment, but there are things, you know, all the beautiful creative people at Big Finish have a habit of going, why don't we go back and uh, have a look at that? So let us us see. No plans, though. I've suddenly looked at what you're wearing, Benji. You look like you're wearing a sort of checked jacket. I'm wearing a checked shirt, and then underneath oh, right. I've got a David Bowie T-shirt. It looks suddenly for a moment. It looked like you look like a 1970s sports presenter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because that's just what I look like. Um, let's be honest. Um, Played by I, Clifford Earl. I, I, <laughs> probably. Yeah, oh, that's oh the, here's some sports. Yes, I'm wiggling my arm. Yeah, what are you doing? Stop touching me. Um, <laughs> I also wanted to ask if you have any plans to work with Lily Travers and Jared Garflied. Is it meant to say Garfield? Surely. I don't know. It says sort of Garfield. Uh, it must be Garfield. Yeah, yeah. Um, you played Ben and Polly in Twice Upon a Time in those roles. And possibly with David Bradley, Stephen Noonan or Michael Troughton. Um, well, Nick, as well as just imagine. Who knows? Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask you how many plans to work. Yeah. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Then, um, um, but no, we don't actually. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I don't know whether they're voice actors. I think they were sort of employed because they felt they looked vaguely like uh, the original performers for, you know, for Annika Wills and um, Michael Craze. Uh, maybe they thought, I don't know. 
So I've, I've no idea about that. That's something we could look into, though, isn't it? Well, it's worth a go. I mean, Annika's yeah. still around. It's about time we did something. I hope, yeah, perhaps we can get Annika to come and do something for us. That would be lovely. Lovely human being. Well, it's worth a go, isn't it? I mean, come mm. on. Mm. Um, uh, I've also enjoyed the recent further adventures of Lucy Miller oh, and yeah. Charlie Pollard and hope there will be more, or maybe even further adventures of Tamsin Drew and L and L and Kelso. <laughs> El Kelso, El Kelso, Ann Kelso. I was I was reading Kelso, but I was meant to say Ann. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, can I add my voice to those who've asked for a resolution to the cliffhanger in Big Finish's Sarah Jane series? It would be nice to get some closure after all these years. Best wishes and season's greetings, Paul Garland, son of Professor Garland from the Red Lady. Oh, and then and of course you see. Yeah, the reference to what they what he said to about us at the beginning. Yeah, it says it, it says it from Earthshock and Time Flight respectively. Uh, but I'm sure you knew this already. Yes, I didn't know about uh, son of a- Angela Clifford, Benji. It's uh, Angela Clifford's in in Time Flight. Oh, well, funnily enough, as well is that um, in Earthshock, uh, there's Captain Claire Briggs. there's Claire Clifford. Is there? Claire Clifford plays Professor Carl in Earthshock, yeah. Oh. But I imagine that, the character's Angela Clifford in Time Flight. This is a very good... Yeah, so Angela Clifford is the character in Time Flight, yes. who's the stewardess on Concord. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, the actress in Earthshock is Claire Clifford. So it's just a, a double Clifford whammy there. Yeah, it's, it's so that Claire Clifford plays Captain Briggs's sidekick. Yeah. Uh, Yes, I guess so. Yeah, because Claire Clifford is um, Claire Clifford plays Kyle, uh, the only survivor after the rest of her expedition was wiped out by the Neomorph Cybermen androids in twenty uh, two thousand five hundred twenty six. Oh, no, so not, not that character actually. Well, no. she's the she's the um, she's not the lady on on the bridge with um. No, 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 who no. Who played she's Captain one of the, Briggs? So Captain Briggs, played by the famous actress whose name I can't remember, Beryl Reed. Beryl Reed. God Beryl damn, Reed. what's the matter with me? Here's a new year. Uh, next up, uh, James Williams writes in with suggested additions to the podcast. Hi there. Hi there. Well done. I love the Big Finish podcast. It has been tingling my molecules for a long time. I haven't used that phrase, tingling molecules, for a no. long time, have I? It's no, time no. it was resurrected in Revive. 2023. Revive. To make up for all the awful things that are going to happen this year. On, <laughs> I'm just tempting fate and hoping that the year is going to be marvellous instead. Oh dear, we've had a rotten few years, haven't we? It's so yeah, it depressing. Been great. It ain't been great. At least there's big finish. On last week's podcast, um, don't want to tempt fate there, you asked if there were any new segments that listeners would love to see added to the podcast. Doctor Who covers of all time and space. And thankfully... Oh, I see. I thought you were saying Doctor Who covers as in CD covers. Doctor Who covers all of time and space. And thankfully, Big Finish does a lot more than just Doctor Who. I sometimes feel like there is so much knowledge required to fully understand your stories and ranges. The last time I saw The Avengers, The Prisoner or Dark Shadows was during their original runs. I never... I've never... I, 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 I can't read. I'd never heard of UFO, Star Cops, Adam Adamant and The Omega Factor and many more of these classic British TV shows before Big Finish revived them. Plus, I'm visually disabled, so the last time I saw Doctor Who, he had a brand new companion named Ace. 
Almost every week, you make a clause of Axos joke. We haven't made one this week. Uh, I wouldn't know the clause of Axos if they scratched me. <laughs> the clause of Axos is a 1971 Doctor Who story starring John Pertwee and Katie Manning with Roger Delgado as the master. And it is about a strange, life-absorbing entity called Axos coming to Earth and they offer uh, Axonite to Earth because it's a it's a, a molecule that will apparently, it's an intelligent molecule that will apparently allow us to grow all our food bigger and solve all the starvation problems of the world, but actually it's here just to drain all the energy of Earth. That's what the Clause of Axos is about. Abort, man! Abort! That was a Clause of Axos joke um, in inverted commas. If you've ever well got done. a new UFO set coming out, which we have, I'd love to hear you talk about a favourite character or episode from the TV series. Rewatching the first Doctor in order or trying the third Doctor in black and white? Hmm? Talk about favourite companions, supporting characters, villains or storylines. I'd love for you to, to share your passion and knowledge about these amazing shows. That's my number one choice for a new segment. Oh, us kind of... Well, yeah, we sort of do it anyway, but you'd like us to do it in a sort of special segment. Nice one, James. I have one other suggestion. Go away. No, that's not really his suggestion. You know, the quickest way to get me to buy something from Big Finish, let me hear the magic Big Finish creates. Nothing makes me buy an audio faster than the 15-minute samples at the end of the podcast. All the free samples on the website. Yeah, they usually are. And aside, I've never understood why every new release doesn't have a free sample. For a short while, you ran a second and a second 15-minute sample during the podcast. The second sample was an older production. Um, I'd love to see that segment come back. I'll let you into a secret. Quite often, if there's only one release coming out in a week the also available bit is occupied by an old release that's what we often do we're not doing it this uh, week because um because we've just been going on too much uh, thanks for all your hard work that you two put into this wonderful podcast and big finishes amazing audio dramas james williams thank you james loving it well we've got one more here uh from mr bosley um Subject to this one is season-appropriate Doctor Who stories, podcast feature I'd most like to see, and Mr. Bosley's, of course, Mark. Um, dear Nick and Benji, hi there. Pauses of response. Hi there. Hi there. <laughs> I love it. Like, every time, love it. And season's greetings. Mm. I hope this email finds you well, as yes. well as can be expected. Um, Christmas is nearly upon us. Well, it's gone, mate. It's been and gone. <laughs> that was it. Jum, uh, that was your life. Do I get another one? Sorry, that's your lot, mate. <laughs> uh, uh, inevitably, we'll all start thinking about the brilliant chimes of midnight. Uh. Oh. Uh, I'm Rock partly you. writing this because I wanted to shout out about uh, other season-appropriate stories, if not set at Christmas, but set amid snow and ice. Oh. Um, I recently had another listen to to the wonderful Frostfire. Oh, yes. Um, I love the Frostfair setting, and I like to imagine Doctors Hartnell and Capaldi, uh, or possibly Noonan and Dudman, just missing each other. Oh. Um, I love Jane Austen's pugilist tendencies, and frankly, I love anything written by Mark Platt. Um, I'm always happy to revisit Land of the Dead, Winter for the Adept, and the Dalek contract slash the final phase too. Uh, all snowy settings, yes. 
Uh, Frostfire brings me on to the podcast feature I'd most like to see. Okay. Um, Nick, I think it was you that introduced the behind the scenes extras. It was. I would love it if you could occasionally produce retrospective extras for those early releases. Uh, I realise it couldn't be like the current releases where you're able to capture cast and crew in the process of making the story. Sadly, not everyone is still with us, but it would be great to hear some of the contributors, say Justin Richards talking about the Whispers of Terror, or Nick Pegg talking about the Spectre of Lanyon Moor. Um, I realised doing uh, everything would be a huge undertaking, and it might be too much to produce one weekly, just a thought. It's a brilliant thought, and we have looked into it before, but it's just finding someone who's good enough to do it, and also we, you know, we really would have to pay someone to do it and it's 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 a yeah and i would love for that mate. To, do it. It, to me when i listen to the old big finish ones and you get to the end of the story and that's it it just feels so rude it feels like a slap in the face doesn't it, it feels like the door has slammed as the theme tune ends you think what no one's going to be talking about it and talking about the lunches or talking about how <laughs> they watched doctor who as a kid from behind the sofa just what is going on? So I, yeah. I must admit, I do enjoy people's perspectives on their their experiences with Doctor Who growing up and their memories, and yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I, I love I love the behind the scenes, and they're quite relaxing as well in a weird sort of way. Yeah, I can't yeah. explain it, but like if I'm sitting mastering uh, a a CD, bear in mind that I have to listen pretty much to the whole thing in one go, as opposed I don't get the luxury of you know when an episode finishes, for example. I'll go and make a cup of tea. It's like I've got to just sit and listen. It's my yeah, fault, it's really, your job. but I do. I do anyway. But so when it gets the extras, it's like it's like all the pressure's off, and you can relax and just enjoy the comforting music and people talking. Mm. Um, there you go. You've got an inkling into my life. Um, <laughs> I don't recall any mention of '80s music last week. Uh, I wondered if either of you had come across Robin Hitchcock. No. Um, he's a very funny chap, much influenced by Sid Barrett, uh, Bob Dylan and the Beatles. You know, oh. I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan and a lot of the Beatles this week. Oh. Um, Do you know about Robin Hitchcock, though? I uh, haven't a dicky bird, I'm afraid. No. Um, in 1984, he released a fine acoustic album called I Often Dream of Trains, um, which I think is name-checked in a Doctor Who novel. Ooh, yeah. um, but he's still going strong. He wrote a song called Mindhorn about the fictional detective. I'm imagining that would be Benji's kind of thing. Um, Have you ever seen it? I've, I, I, I've I, not I, seen it, but I know it's got uh, it's got um, Julian Barrett in it, hasn't it, as Mindhorn? Yes. Another Barrett, you see. Yeah, it's also got um, Sir Kenneth Branagh in it, just in one scene where he auditions uh, <laughs> Incredible. for a job. Uh, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I don't think... I have to confess that I did start watching Mindhorn, but I just lost interest. Halfway <laughs> Do you know the basis of the story? I know the basis of it, yeah. He's a detective with a bionic eye in an old TV series, which has um, been cancelled for many years. And then some criminal uh, holds someone hostage and is a bit bonkers. And will only negotiate with Mindhorn. So they bring him up. It's, you know, he hasn't had an acting career since Mindhorn. And he has to play the character again, you know, with a wig on and all this kind of stuff. Hilarious. It does sound bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Um, it does sound like my sort of thing. So maybe I, maybe I should watch it. So Robin Hitchcock. Yeah, it says here, if you haven't heard any Robin Hitchcock songs, um, Uncorrected Personality Traits, My Favourite Buildings, Brenda's Iron Sledge and The Cheese Alarm are all good ones to start with. 
I love that. Can you imagine that just completely out of context? Um, I love it. Might have, to, might have to check a bit of old Robin out. Yeah. Uh, on the subject of misheard lyrics, my old friend and fellow Who fan David pointed out that the end of Billy Ocean's The Going Gets Tough sounds a bit like Going Gets Stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This I'm is down quality stuff, Mark. Uh, on... Go and get stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely New Year's Day oh, sentiment. Joyous, joyous. That's Happy New to... Year. Go and get stuffed. Uh, well, that's the way. That's that's starters we need to carry on. Uh, it says here on color Doctor Who in black and white. Yeah. The first time I saw the mind of evil, it was in black and white uh, on UK Gold in the nineties. Uh, yeah. Season seven and eight look a, more, a lot more like season six when you turn the color down. True. Um, what what a wonderful thing to say just there. Turn the color down. Oh, yeah. Something people nobody says that anymore. Turn the. I'm color reaching down, for the you? control now. Oh, joyous. As always, thanks to everyone at Big Finish for doing the things that keep me sane or close in these hard times. <laughs> Feel free to read it all, uh, read out all, some or none of the above. Well, you got the whole lot there, Mark. <laughs> so all the best, right. Mark. Thank it was you. a quality email, wasn't it? Yeah, quality. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. Quality. But, but Mark, go and get stuffed. Listen, um, uh, that's it uh, uh, this week on the email front. Please do keep them coming, particularly on the subject of new segments for the podcast. That really, we seem to have hit a, a good vein of um, suggestions there. And even if we never do any of your suggestions, reading them out is giving me a lot of fun. Also, 80s music and um, Solid, yeah, any other well. songs that sound like Go and Get Stuffed. <laughs> that's just really amusing me. Um, how about um, a fashion or cooking section? Or a segment where we make things out of sticky back plastic. What? What am I talking about? So, uh, we'll be teasing you with the first 15 minutes of Dead Star later on. Uh, the audio novel by Kate Orman, performed beautifully by the brilliant Michael Troughton. But before that, it's... The Randomoid Selectatron, where we randomly select a big finish release and offer you a 25% discount on it. Okay, what have you got, mate? You ready? You ready? It is Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, oh. uh, The Crash of the UK 201, uh, oh. written by Johnny Morris, Jonathan Morris, uh, and starring Maureen O'Brien and Peter Purvis. What a, what a crew. Oh, there it is. Out Love of print on CD, cover. so you can only get the download of it. That's right. Here's the trailer. Vicky? Vicky, are you awake? Vicky, you're still in bed. Father! Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, The Early Adventures, The Crash of UK 201. Then this is it. The day it happened. When what happened? The crash? But what has happened to Vicky? Uh, she's been sent back through her personal time to a point earlier in her life. It's one of the crew, a man called Bennett. He did it. He killed everyone. A stowaway and a murderer. I had nothing to do with that man's death. 
Hull temperature critical. Adjusting trajectory. Entering ionosphere. Look, you just have to stop the ship now, please, before it's too late. Good luck, my boy. Good luck. Big finish. We love stories. <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? Stephen! Stephen! So there you have it. Always reliable. The jolly old Johnny Morris. Directed by the brilliant Lisa Bauman. And, oh, yeah, music by uh, Toby Hritzek Robinson. I'm just trying to see who the sound design's by. By Toby as Toby, well. Yeah. There you so go. When you listen yeah. to that, you can just imagine lots of food sort of boiling in the background. <laughs> Number of discs, two. Duration, 156 minutes. Sounds crashing on the planet Dido. A tragic chain of events was set in motion, leading to the death of... Almost all of its crew and a massacre of the indigenous population. That sounds fascinating, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, Benji, Hi. while I email Jackie Emery at Big Finish to inform her of our random selection so that she can set the offer live on the bigfinish.com website, fingers crossed she's not on leave. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, Benji, would you like to remind people how to get this incredible 25% discount in the style of Peter Ling's Alpine Sunbeam? <laughs> Just me going... It's a void. There's nothing here. Um, all you have to I think that's impossible, do. isn't it? Sorry. It is impossible, but I like a challenge. Uh, just go to bigfinish.com, uh, head over on the menu to podcast, um, then go to read more. Once you're reading more, head down to the blurb underneath the picture of myself and Nick, and it will say, just click here and enter the code. No, don't enter that. Enter in buck up. That's B U C K U P, all capital letters, no space. Enter buck up there, and you will get your discount. It's as simple as that, and a great way to build up your collection. Oh, it's broken down. Peter! <laughs> Gotta admit, come on, I gave it I gave it a good shot. Well, thank you, Ran. You got us off to a good start there in 2023. Next week's podcast is out on Sunday the 8th of January, as you'd expect, a week later, you see, <laughs> and is entitled River Double, because it features the diary of River Song in her epic 11th CD in download box set uh, this time writer tim foley delivers four great adventures under the seemingly innocuous title of friend of the family uh, alex kingston once again stars with a guest cast to die for uh, fantastic amazing you won't believe it also featuring is a uh, fantastic torchwood double bill auton adventure entitled double it's by veteran Big Finish writer Guy Adams, directed by veteran Big Finish director Barnaby Edwards, and stars the truly amazing Louise Jameson in a brand new role. It's a corking podcast as well, and that's for darn sure, my friends. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. Just before we go, I uh, just thought I'd tell everybody I received two DVDs this Christmas. One was Sky. Uh, television series from the oh, 70s really? and the other was Raven another television series starring Phil Daniels um, I don't know Raven but I know Sky I know you know Sky yeah very exciting looking forward to getting stuck into it my parents gave me those ones 
Looking forward mm. to getting in, stuck into those. Yeah. Um, I've seen I've seen Sky a long time ago, um, so it'd be really nice to Sky. check back in. Sky. Sky. Um, but That's what his friend says. Sky. Sky. <laughs> no, it's Sky, not Sky. <laughs> fool um, so do write in and tell us your opinions on uh, either of those mm-hmm. but thanks again to all of you for listening if you're still there it is are you there hello yes you are just in time of course to say this as per usual the Big Finish podcast is presented by me Benji Clifford and him Nick Briggs hey. and Nick also wrote produced and edited it and both Benji and I did this for, for the, the love, love of stories, stories. And finally, on the Big Finish podcast, Doctor Who, the audio novels, The Dead Star by Kate Orman and performed by Michael Troughton. Doctor Who, the audio novels, The Dead Star by Kate Orman, read by Michael Troughton. Episode 1 Polly asked Ben, What's the first thing you're going to do when we get there? Both of them had their hands on the TARDIS console. They hadn't got the faintest idea how to operate it, but experience had told them to be ready to grab hold of something solid. If the TARDIS hit turbulence, you were likely to be thrown against one of the high walls, and those circular indentations could leave a painful bruise. Ben said, I'm going to start with your full English breakfast. Bacon and eggs, sausages, baked beans, fried tomatoes, mushrooms and toast, washed down with a bucket of tea. Then for lunch, proper fish and chips. Are you going to spend the entire day eating? Polly was appalled. You'll make yourself sick. If there's anything I've learnt about the future and the past, Paul, he said, it's that you never know where your next meal is coming from, or when. Plus, there's always only one place in the universe to get a decent pie and mash, and the TARDIS food machine is not it. They were both ready for their destination. Polly wore a white mini-dress with short sleeves, ready for summer shopping in the city, and her blonde hair had been carefully ironed flat. Ben was less spectacular in dark jeans and a fashionable floral shirt. As usual, the doctor looked as though he had found his clothes in a dusty trunk and thrown them on while thinking about something else. His black jacket, pale blue shirt and grey pants were all at least two sizes too large. He had a mop of black hair and pale eyes that gazed out at the world with a mixture of melancholy and boyish glee. He had on a dark blue bow tie, but he hadn't done it up. He looked at his companions, crestfallen. But don't either of you want to come to the Natural History Museum with me? They both looked at him guiltily, but the doctor grinned. You don't want to spend an entire day peering at cuneiform? (laughs) That's quite understandable. It'll make a nice change for me, focusing on little things instead of great big things. They smiled at him a little warily. It hadn't been long since the doctor they had first met, the stern grandfather with a twinkle in his eye, had transformed himself into this avuncular, mischievous, sometimes infuriating new man. They were still a little unsure of him, 
Perhaps he felt the same way about them. That was the moment the TARDIS collided with something. Oh, oh my word! shouted the Doctor. Ben and Polly grabbed for the console, but the force of the knock bowled them across the hard floor of the room and left them squashed against the wall. Then there was a second shock and the TARDIS felt as though it was plunging downwards like a broken lift. Ben and Polly found themselves floating up towards the ceiling. Oh, come on, Doctor! yelled Ben, thrashing, trying to reach the floor. The Doctor had somehow managed to stay stuck to the console, despite the roller coaster ride. Uh, we've run into a, a corridor through time, he shouted over the rumbling and grumbling of the TARDIS engines. Do something, Doctor! cried Polly. I'm trying to lock onto it. I can use it as a guide for a safe landing if I can just... There was a terrific lurch, which made Ben grateful he hadn't started on that full English yet. Then, with a great thump, the TARDIS stopped cold. Ben and Polly dropped a couple of feet onto the floor. They clambered up, rubbing their bruises. The doctor emerged from behind the console. He seemed undamaged, though that silly hat he insisted on wearing had come off. It is over, isn't it? said Polly. Oh yes, we've landed perfectly safely. Perfectly, said Ben. I just sort of slid the TARDIS down the time corridor. Simple, really, when you know how. He glanced at a few dials. There we are, London, 1960. Oh dear. The time corridor knocked us a little off beam. It's 1968. He patted the console. Still, not a bad effort, all things considered. Polly and Ben looked at each other. Two years in their future. Polly said, Doctor, how can there be a corridor in time? The same way there can be a corridor in space, the doctor said, picking up his hat. It was all crumpled. He sighed and tossed it onto the console. Someone made it. We've landed at one end of the time corridor. Whoever is responsible for it is somewhere outside. In London, said Polly. You mean there's someone from outer space out there? Certainly someone who doesn't belong on 20th century Earth. Ben was rubbing his banged knee. I'd like to have a word with them, whoever they are. The doctor touched a control and the TARDIS doors slid open. For a moment, the three space-time travellers stared out at the world outside, bewildered. Then Polly said, You've landed sideways. The TARDIS must be lying on the pavement. The doctor frowned. He fumbled in his pockets until he found a marble. Without ceremony, he flicked it out of the door. Instead of falling down to the pavement, the marble fell sideways landing on the window of the shop and rolling to stop against the frame. The glass-on-glass -glass sound was unnaturally loud. It was though the walls were the ground, and the ground was a wall. Everything was turned sideways. It's not us that's sideways, said Ben. It's the world. Stay here, both of you. The doctor got down on his hands and knees and crawled through the doorway out into the sidelong world. He crept along the front of one building, then the next, 
as though he was an enormous black beetle. Look at the shops, Polly, said Ben. Isn't this Carnaby Street? He trailed off uncertainly. Where are the cars? Or the people? And why is everything? Polly waved a hand at the confusing view. Topsy-turvy! The doctor reached the shut door of the next shop along and stopped. Aha! Watch this! And he stood up. Polly and Ben both gasped. Somehow it seemed like a dangerous thing to do, as though the doctor would topple onto the paving stones. But he stood there, at a ninety-degree angle to the road, grinning. This new doctor is familiar and strange at the same time, thought Polly. A bit like this sideways street. You can come out now, the doctor called. Don't worry about the windows. They won't break. Awkwardly, Ben and Polly made their way out onto the shop fronts and stood up. Ben stepped gingerly on one of the windows, but the thin glass held his weight, just as the doctor had said. Polly put one hand against the pavement to support herself. The cement was warm under her hand. There was an empty blue sky to their left. A little further down the street, there was something else that was wrong with the buildings. Polly murmured, Does looking at that make you feel funny? Hilarious, said Ben. If you really want to feel odd, look up. Polly did without thinking and saw the shops across the narrow street suspended above her as though they would fall at any moment. She threw her arms above her head, then sheepishly put them down. Ben was still staring at whatever it was at the end of the street. He pulled his gaze away and looked back at the TARDIS. The first time they had seen the TARDIS, it had looked like a police box, a logical disguise if you wanted to park your time machine in London. The thing was, it had gone right on looking like a police box, even in Antarctica or in the 7th century. It might have fitted neatly into Skewwith Carnaby Street if it hadn't been sticking out of the middle of a shop front, a good five feet above the pavement. There's no one, said Ben. In the middle of the day? Not even a pigeon. Polly crouched down and tried to pull, then push a shop door open without success. She peered in through a window, cupping her hands around her eyes. There was nothing inside. No clothes, no tables, nothing. She said, What could take London and do something like this? Whatever this is. Who knows what a time corridor is, said Ben, or what it could do. What if it ain't just London that's twisted around like this? What if it's the old world? Polly said firmly. If something really had happened to the Earth, the Doctor wouldn't be taking it so lightly. The Doctor had reached the spot where the shops ended suddenly, halfway through a building. There was a sort of a twist. If you followed the paving stones in the road with your eyes, you could just about make sense of it. And then, hanging overhead... Water? Aha! Just as I thought, the doctor muttered. It's discontinuous. Polly stared up at the stretch of the Thames hanging upside down above them. Why doesn't the water fall down on us? she cried. Don't give it any ideas, Paul, murmured Ben. Do you see the bridge up there? said the doctor. We're going to step onto it. How? Like this. Take my hand, Ben. You take Polly's other hand, that's right. And now follow me. Don't stop to think. One... Two, three. The world swivelled around them, 
the Thames swinging down and sliding underneath them. Polly stumbled, unsure for a moment which way was up or down or forward. Then she found herself standing on concrete. She put out a hand and leaned against a grey metal railing. The water was below them now, where it belonged, flowing as though nothing was out of the ordinary. The others were also standing on the wide pavement. Ben had screwed his eyes shut halfway across. He opened them one at a time. It was only a short stretch to the bridge. Behind them it corkscrewed back into Carnaby Street, and ahead it suddenly stopped being a bridge and turned into a park. At least that's the right way up, said Polly. To the right of the park there was a tall building. There was something the matter with it, but she couldn't make it out. To the left was, well, it looked like a collection of concrete walls enclosing green spaces, but enormous and hanging upside down from the sky. The doctor was bouncing a small rubber ball up and down in the middle of the empty road, his lips moving. Counting? They stared at him. The simple methods are often the best, he said. Oh no, thought Ben. He's doing his work it out for yourself thing. He'll be playing his blasted recorder next. Doctor, he said loudly, this isn't really London, is it? The doctor looked up at his companions with a grin. That's right. This is a singularity. A region of space-time where the laws of physics breaks down. <clears throat> well, not so much breaks down as forgets how to drive, he chuckled. When the doctor did explain something, you didn't want to miss a word. Ben and Polly listened like charmed snakes. You see, one end of the time corridor must be anchored in London. When the TARDIS collided with it, it caused the fabric of space-time to open up a little. He cupped an imaginary ball in his hands, then moved them apart, as though the ball had got larger. Now, that little bit of extra space had to be filled in by something, otherwise there'd be the most tremendous explosion, you see. So the corridor copied the closest matter. Ben and Polly looked around them, amazed. Hard to believe it isn't real, said Polly. Her hair lifted in the slight breeze. It's only when you look around you realise it just can't be. It makes sense locally, said the doctor, but not globally. That's just a complicated way of saying it doesn't add up to anything. Ben said, We're lucky it didn't copy any of the people. Not as lucky as they were, said the doctor. These bubbles seem well behaved for now, but they can't last forever. Ben said, Well then, let's get out of here. Let's get back to the TARDIS. Oh dear, we can't, Ben. The doctor rummaged in his pockets. If we try to take off without knowing the structure constants, we might disappear into the vortex for good. So first, we need to take some readings. He pulled out a collection of bits and pieces, string and a little magnet and some pins, which didn't exactly set his companions' minds at rest. I wonder which part this is, said Ben. I'm sure we'd recognise it, said Polly. If only we could see the landmarks around it. I mean the real ones. They were standing on a brick pathway next to low walls which held beds of lavender and rosemary. The air should have been thick with their scent, but when Polly put her face up to the plants, she couldn't smell a thing. There was no smell at all. Not grass, not exhaust fumes, not the dubious water of the Thames. Something else was bothering Ben. 
He rubbed the back of his neck. Polly, do you have that feeling we're being watched? Polly murmured. Now that you mention it, yes, I do. Maybe there is someone here after all. Maybe whoever made the time corridor and caused this mess. She turned slowly, peering in every direction. I can't see anyone. Maybe we're just being paranoid. It's so creepy here. If you want to know what's really creepy, said Ben, look up, look at the sky. <laughs>